Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey guys, Joel here from The Passing Shot. Just to let you know that this episode was pre-recorded during week one of the French Open. Enjoy! Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Hello tennis fans and welcome to The Passing Shot, an extra slice. Hello everyone and welcome to Extra Slice where we put the spotlight on one topic from the tennis world. As always, I'm Joel, the Wandering Wildcard, and I'm joined by the self-confessed Queen of Clay, Kim. Kim, how are you doing today? Hi Joel, yeah, I'm good thanks, hope you're well. Um, quite excited for today's Extra Slice because we'll be discussing a subject that I guess as a lifelong Rafa fan is somewhat close to my heart and it's going to evoke quite a lot of memories. So um, yeah, I'm really excited for our special guest today. I think it's going to be an absolute cracker because this week we are going to be looking back and reflecting on the story of one of the greatest modern rivalries in tennis. Of course, I'm talking about the rivalry between Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal. Now, to help us with this episode, we've actually reached out to the Passing Shot community and brought onto the show our number one Fidel rivalry expert and special guest, Dan Rubenstein, who hosts the Sports Wars podcast, which documents great athletic rivalries as if the listener was there every step of the way. Dan, it's great to have you on. Um, How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about Roger Federer. I'm excited to talk about Rafa Nadal. I'm excited to talk about grass and clay and the continent of Australia and Andy Roddick. Whatever you guys want to talk about, I'm here for you and your listeners. (laughs) That's great because you've actually, on your podcast, Sports Wars, you've actually documented the Federer-Nadal rivalry from the very beginning. Is that right? Yeah, as as far back as we could possibly go, going back to Roger Federer playing all sorts of sports in Switzerland, be it badminton or soccer or basketball, and Rafa training with his then and still coach, Uncle Tony, all the way back in Mallorca and all the way to uh, to modern times. So yeah, we we documented you know their very different paths, even though there's a uh, you know a ton of similarities between how they've evolved as players and come to be champions. And what drew you to like Federer and Nadal as a rivalry you wanted to cover in in your podcast? Sure. Obviously, there are a ton of sports, a ton of athletes, a ton of stories. And so many of them, there is a, a natural arc where there is a beginning, middle and end. But the fact is, it's still ongoing. We still get to potentially see them play against each other. And a lot of what they look like and what it, if it's strengths and weaknesses when they were whatever 24 19 29 and 24 
it's still apparent today. It's ongoing. We don't know the end. And there's something pretty fascinating about talking about something that's this long lasting that still is open ended. And as a tennis nerd myself, it appealed to me that we get to talk about a sport that is is so unique in its challenges. And I just I, I've basically grown up watching it. So I, I'm thrilled to sort of deep dive it. So as a, as a tennis nerd, a self-confessed tennis nerd, mm-hmm. how did you go about researching for this podcast? I mean, you know, you've kind of lived through the rivalry and we're still living through it. But was that quite an intensive process, kind of researching for the podcast? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's hours and hours on YouTube, just re-watching things that I had forgotten about. It's reading books. Rafa's obviously been a part of biography, and there've, there's been a ton written about Roger Federer, you know, even David Foster Wallace in the New York Times about Roger Federer as a, a religious experience and trying to put the beauty of his game, the the unbelievable, I guess, brutality almost has a negative connotation, but I, I mean it in a positive way about Rafa's game and his crazy athleticism and sort of... Just a combination of rewatching and reading and, you know, John Wertheim, who obviously has, has written for Sports Illustrated, he helped on the Tennis Channel put together an incredible documentary about the 2008 Wimbledon final and just pulling as much first person stuff as possible. And we've got a couple of people who helped, you know, Elizabeth Kay wrote uh, the story that we did, but I, I put in a lot of time editing and just sort of figuring out how I wanted to put things into my words and into the context of my eyes. So it, it did take a while because tennis is not a quick sport, as you guys know. Yeah, I mean, it it really shows actually when you listen, you know, it's it's very informative, but it's also got that lovely like descriptive quality. And I think it really brings listeners you know right to the scene of of the match and you can really feel that atmosphere from kind of the matches that you focus on um so let's delve in a bit further to the series so it consists of several parts and I know you mentioned earlier that you go right back so what the first episode is called the hothead could you just tell us a little bit about where you're starting off um starting off the series Dan Sure. Yeah. Roger Federer was known and is known, not now anymore, but his history is that he was temperamental, that he, like many of us who have played the sport, not anywhere near the professional level, got extremely frustrated with himself for missing stupid shots, for just screwing up, for lack of a better term, whether it was not serving well, whether it was losing to clearly inferior opponents, and it goes back to his time as a junior, but even early on on tour, which sort of culminated with a match against Murat Safin, the uh, the really excellent Russian player, where they both were just crazy hot-headed in a match, and Federer, looking back on it, was embarrassed by his antics. And that was a, a turning point in his career where he decided to really clear his mind and take this weakness of his and turn it into a strength and he would argue with coaches and you know there was almost no calming him down because he he set such a high bar for himself we talk a lot about uh, chasing perfection because he knew what he was capable of whether it was in 2003 taking down Pete Sampras at Wimbledon whether it was you know how well he would play against the incumbent greats Andre Agassi Evgeny Kofelnikov whoever and it would drive him nuts that he couldn't do it consistently and would lose to guys that he should never be losing to. And so that really informed his evolution of going from this guy who couldn't keep his head on straight to the most unflappable player we've seen sort of effortlessly glide his way through the tour in modern times. So it was very cool to look back and see that 
you know, and in a certain point of his life, Roger Federer was human, just like the rest of us. It's like we're now at a point where, yeah, a lot of people, as you said, it's like he's almost like a, a religious experience. But, you know, back in the day, he was very raw. You know, yes, I think a lot of players would have said he had the potential to go far to get to number one. But potentially it was his his manner and his behavior on court that would potentially hold him back. And it's funny that we're talking about Nick Kyrgios now doing the same thing, isn't it? You know, getting so so wound up on court. And it's uh, it's it just shows once you control that, it, you know, what, what you can become, I suppose. Oh, for sure. And with Kyrgios, especially, he has physical gifts that Federer couldn't dream of. He is, you know, to my eyes, which I don't know what that means to anybody, but there there is a natural ability with Kyrgios that even Federer, as excellent and you know, perhaps the greatest ever that he is, could never really physically match. And so it's fascinating to see. And that's, you know, the margins are so slim. That's the difference between potential and accomplishment. And Federer is that rare person to to get over that hump. And we've seen tennis as that individual sport. You're out there alone. It's a boxing match and there's nobody to calm you down. There's no coach to sort of help you regroup uh, in the moment during changeovers or in the middle of points or whatever. And... Roger Federer is clearly the exception to that rule. So in this first episode, Dan, we we look at Federer, you know, early 2004. He's he's dominating tennis. He's kind of resolved his his inner demons and he faces Rafa for the first time. And let's just let's just take a a, a listen to to the bit in, in your podcast where they meet for the very first time. It's March 28th, 2004 at the Miami Open. The air is cool inside the locker room of Stadium Court in Key Biscayne, Florida. Roger Federer pulls his shoulder-length dark hair into a ponytail and ties a white bandana around his head. He jumps up and down a few times. He's feeling confident. He's about to go out there for a third-round match against a lower-ranked opponent. This should be easy. He puts his racket bag over his shoulder and strides confidently through the tunnel that leads to the court. He hears the crowd before he sees them. 9,000 people packed into the stands, all here to see the newly minted number one men's tennis player in the world do his thing. Tonight's lamb to the slaughter, who cares? They're here to see Federer notch another impressive win, and Federer is eager to give them what they want. On the other side of the net, along the baseline, his opponent is waiting. Well, not exactly waiting. The guy is jumping out of his skin with nervous energy. Literally, he's jumping up and down, knees coming to his chest. He's a baby-faced 17-year-old boy preparing to play a match against a man five years his senior. But here's the thing. The kid's been doing pretty well. Two years ago, he was ranked number 762 in the world, but in the last year, he's rocketed up to number 34. Most of the people watching have no idea who he is, though. All they know is his name, Rafael Nadal. This was the third round of Miami, 2004. Rafael Nadal beats Roger Federer for the first time. You said you've been a tennis fan for a long time, Dan. Do you remember where you were? Like, do you remember this match? Do you Did you think at the time that this could be the start of of something special? Or did you just kind of think it was another another match, just an odd defeat for Federer? I have no idea where I was. I have no idea with whom I watched the show. But looking back on it, it was incredible to see things that we would see in the future. But no, I, I, I remember 
you know, as somebody who paid attention to tennis, and obviously, you know, Key Biscayne is a major tournament, I remember hearing about Rafa Nadal as a 16, 17-year-old, uh, just potentially excellent player. To have, he has all the potential in the world. But, no, I don't remember this match happening. I had to go back and watch to, to really get an idea. It's an interesting rivalry because it grew up at a time where you can go back and it, it has all been kind of videoed and archived and growing up in the age of social media i think it's really helped fans and people who want to follow these guys really kind of get to grips with the whole story and on a level that it probably didn't exist 10 20 years ago definitely it it, it, the fact is that the the discussions that were happening around tennis were limited to in-match commentary or newspaper or magazines after the fact and the the sort of live analysis and the live reactions just didn't really exist on on a global scale so the impact of this was you know we really didn't know it until later on and kind of looking at Federer and Nadal how you know back back then and you compare to now do you think they acted differently do you think like in terms of you know the way they you know went on court do you think they were kind of more you know I mean obviously Federer was number one but Nadal was you know coming up do you think their kind of demeanor on court suggested you know greatness was to come at that time, on Federer's part, somewhat, yes, there were there was there were elements of Federer's game. Whether it was the the one handed backhand, whether it was the pinpoint serve, there were elements there. Obviously, the temperament came a little bit later on. I I, I apologize if I'm screwing up years. Um, Federer wins Wimbledon in 2003. I believe he he beat Sampras in 2001. I may have said 2003 before. Um, Nadal was more. From a 16, 17-year-old, he is far, far beyond other 16, 17-year-olds we had seen. And you see the heavy forehand that he sort of made his own. You see the athleticism and ability to to counterpunch as he scampers around the court. The polish isn't fully there. Obviously, 16, 17 years old, he is not competing like he eventually would, say, on grass at Wimbledon. And, you know, having the ability, like, really no Spaniard before him to get deep into that, that tournament because of his clay court background and... Yes, there are elements of Federer that he is a Grand Slam champion at this point, but the the absolute and complete dominance match to match is not there. The focus point to point is not there. The shot making shot making ability is apparent. You see that kernel, but nobody watched Roger Federer in two thousand three, two thousand four, and said he might be the greatest of all time. I, I think that'd be that'd be lying through your teeth if somebody said that. I think I read somewhere around when he he got to world number one for the first time. Actually, he didn't want a rival. He just wanted to be world number one for as as long as possible. It's kind of like when Nadal came, you know, came onto the scene. It almost was like a reality check in that. Yes, I got to world number one. That's great. But with someone like Nadal coming onto the scene, staying number one was going to be you know a big a big challenge. Yeah, and the context, as you remember, is coming turn of the century. It's the tail end of Pete Sampras. Um, there, there are a number of players who show flashes of greatness. You know, whether it's Kafelnikov or Safin or Hewitt goes deep for a couple of years, but nobody really sustains a top tennis on the men's side, and nobody. You know, there's no clear rivalry between two players that is. Oh, this is clearly going to be the next five, seven, ten, twelve years of the sport. And so the fact is, there's no reason for Federer to think, oh, okay, this is, you know, person X is going to be my clear rival. There was no reason for him to think that. And so as soon as he starts dominating a few years after the turn of the century, the fact that Nadal comes around and is his Borg to McEnroe or is his Agassi to Sampras or whoever, 
it, it's not that Federer didn't like it, but I think you're right. He wanted to be number one, and he liked being atop the sport alone. Yeah, I guess when you're at the top of top of your game, you get used to being, you know, at the top. I'm sure the Fed fans would have loved to have seen Federer dominating all decade. But as a Rafa fan, I really enjoyed listening to um, this episode in particular because I actually didn't become a fan really until the year after. So uh, something I could, re- well, not relive, but live for the first time, I guess, through going back to to look at Miami, you know, 2004. But your second episode in in the series focuses more on, on Rafa's uh, rise. And, you know, you said about how Federer had issues when he was younger with his temperament. And I what what do you do in episode two when you talk about Rafa and his sort of his rise to you know to where we to where we meet them first in 2004 sure yeah his rise is incredible and obviously on a sort of more remote setting in Mallorca he is he's not in Madrid he's not in Barcelona he's not in London he's not he doesn't have the same pressures that a lot of top juniors do because he's happy staying staying on the island winning tournaments you know he does travel Spain eventually but it's his life sort of amongst his family that keeps him grounded, keeps him focused. He comes from a family of athletes, both his uncle, his father, his other uncle. You know, it, it's a history with soccer. It's a history with tennis. And so the the family sort of understands the pratfalls ahead of Rafa seeing anything. So they can help anticipate and keep him focused. And the fact is that helped him to uh, sort of prevent from burning out. And he he never had the, the temper that Federer did, and I don't know if he held himself to the same high standard. He was just singularly focused on the next point, the next point, the next point. And that obviously, you know, he beats Pat Cash when Pat Cash comes to the island in 19, gosh, in the 90s anyway. And um, it speaks to the sort of insular nature of how Rafa grew up and just had that had that family support around him to help help him become the player that he he became so quickly and never really did i mean it was very brief the junior circuit for him which again will grind down players he just sort of turns pro pretty quickly to see what he can do against the best in the world and pretty quickly shoots up into the rankings and becomes a force to be reckoned with and you know just has that confidence about him that you know part of that's just ingrained part of that's just genetic and we we just sort of have to appreciate it from afar that he is so confident in his ability that he is not going to he's not going to bow down at the altar of Carlos Moya or Alex Carecha. He is that confident in his game where he is just going to go out and give it his all. And that that sort of took people by surprise. And as somebody who enjoys watching tennis and still enjoys looking back on it, it's uh, it's pretty incredible to watch. I think also with today's, um, like the young, youngsters of today, I don't know, Shapovalov, you know, Zverev, we can be very critical, can't we, when they don't break through as quickly as we expect them to. And do you think that's because we've just kind of got used to having had Rafa on the scene and, and being so exceptional that we now have this much higher standard that we're kind of giving to, to players today? Yes, Rafa's an anomaly. Rafa is 100% an anomaly, and he has the genes, he has the access to the sport, he had the, the mental fortitude to do things that are unusual for players of that age, be it teenagers or in their early 20s, and, you know, we've been spoiled because, you know, on the women's side especially, you see all of these breakthrough players in there, you know, whether it's Martina Hingis or Serena Williams or early Chris Everett, Martina Navratilova, a lot of these players are able to break through. But the distinction is they're special. 
they they have something innate in them and they have circumstances in their lives which help to foster that and you know it, it's tough watching whether it's El Chapo or FAA or Wizavera whatever that you know we we expect so much but they're merely very good and not excellent immediately and that's somehow disappointing because we happen to be watching tennis in this time of all-time excellence between Rafa, Federer and now Djokovic. And how important do you think family plays a part in that? You know, we mentioned earlier about, you know, Uncle Tony. Do you think you know, he's gone a long way in in instilling that belief from a very young age in a way that has made him unique and and, and excelled beyond typically other, you know, other players? Enormous. And Rafa would be the first one to tell you that. People who have written about Rafa or spent time around him and his family in Spain would tell you that, that there is something, you know, beyond their experience with high-level sports in Spain, be it tennis or soccer or whatever, there was something very grounding about him spending all that time with his family instead of, you know, going to an academy, instead of traveling, going to the Orange Bowl in America, going, you know, playing all sorts of different international tournaments that there was something, even though he was playing tennis every day, he was going out fishing, he was going out on the boat, he was playing golf, he was going for runs, he was hanging out with his friends. And so he wasn't he wasn't treated like a tennis robot in the way that I think a lot of modern players can feel like they are when they're sent away to national academies or private academies, that you know he is always surrounded by this big supportive family that – he doesn't think he is special, even though he is clearly special to everyone around him. He just thinks he's a tennis player and he's pretty good. So, as you said, Rafa's junior history, perhaps un- unconventional. And he goes into Roland Garros 2005, having never played that tournament before. And he meets Roger Federer, world number one in the semifinal. Let's just take a listen uh, from your series at that that particular meeting, their first match on clay. And Federer's startled by the power of Nadal's strokes on clay. He's never experienced anything like them. Nadal's huge left arm sets his strokes rotating at an astounding 3,300 revolutions per minute. That's 700 more RPM than Federer's shots. So instead of Federer trying to get his racket on a fuzzy sphere like he always does, it's like trying to return a spinning orb of razor blades. Federer quickly realizes that playing Nadal on clay is nothing like playing him on a hard court. Federer's powerful shots to the corners would be winners on hard courts or on grass. But Nadal scurries this way and that way or slides into them and hits them back. Their rallies are going to 20 strokes or more. Nadal's not afraid of Federer as a lot of players are. Understandable. So we saw in the clip there the difficulties that Federer faced from day one on Rafa. Uh, on the clay. What is it that makes Federer have so many difficulties against Rafa on clay? Can you, can you, can you put the spotlight on that for us, Dan? Sure. And as somebody with a one-handed backhand, albeit not a great one, I can imagine how difficult it is when you have that hooking lefty forehand, hooking away from your one-handed backhand, bouncing up high on the clay. And even though Federer did grow up playing on clay courts, this is not a matter of him growing up on clay or hard, you know, bouncy hard courts or carpet or whatever. He, he is familiar with playing on clay, exceedingly familiar. The problem for him is Nadal has the perfect weapon, a lefty hooking, high bouncing heavy forehand. That's something like the the RPMs are like 60% more than other other forehands. He's just putting that much spin on the ball 
that it is the perfect counterpoint to Federer's game. It has nothing really to do with a specific weakness, even though his backhand isn't what his forehand is. It's that he is the one, he, he sort of fills that one specific role that that will trouble Federer over and over, especially on high bouncing clay. And the fact is, Nadal has not just a fitness, but an athleticism. We're talking about, when you start talking about top tennis players, obviously, these guys are in shape. These guys are in incredible shape. They can play seven sets if need be. But it's Nadal's change of direction. It's his ability to improvise. It's ability to read angles of the court. That all with incredible fitness and strength and this forehand and you know a lefty serve hooking away from Federer it's it's the perfect crime essentially against an otherwise excellent game that Federer possesses so you know it's it's not even just Federer obviously Nadal gives every single right-handed player in the world trouble on clay but when you start looking at those one-handed backhands, which are becoming rarer and rarer, whether it's, you know, you still have Stan Wawrinka, you still have players with this one-handed backhand, but it's especially daunting. And Federer's tall, but he's not 6'7", he's 6'2", and still bouncing up to his shoulders. It's it's just particularly a, a pain in the ass, for lack of a better term, that Nadal will just keep hammering all day, all night. And do you think that with... You talk about Nadal's, you know, physical fitness. Do you think he ushered in like a new level of fitness to the game? Perhaps to a point where it actually was unmanageable given that, you know, you had those injury, you know, those injury issues and had to almost take off a bit of muscle weight. But before then, do you feel like he upped the level in terms of the men's game in terms of fitness? Oh, I think so. And there are certain players, and you, we, you see whether it's 90s, whether it's 80s, and this it's all part of the evolution of, I think, sport in general. Just a, a bigger focus on nutrition, a bigger focus on rest and recovery, a bigger focus on, especially this is more recently, being choosy about which tournaments to play, to, to sort of rest and give your, your muscles a break. But it all coincides with better equipment, you know, better clothing, better shoes. Um, that that Rafa was able to come along at the perfect time, and he was the perfect example. You look at what Rafa looked like, even in his early 20s, and then you look at, say, what John McEnroe looked like in 1983. You're talking night and day. You you look at what Pete Sampras looked like, even as a younger player, tall and skinny, but the the musculature is just not there. And the fact is, Nadal had the, the type of game that he could not just run around all day, but he wasn't losing pace. He wasn't losing power. And that, that to me, was, you know, we, we saw, you know, Andre Agassi as a great counterpuncher, but, you know, he would lose some steam as matches went on. And there was something unique about Rafa's physicality that, that I think was, was transformational in the men's game. And I guess I think that kind of took him on a clay court, particularly to a level that so few people have been able to compete with. You know, at this time, it's kind of like Roger Federer was able to live with Rafael Nadal on a grass court because, you know, he could keep the point short. But, you know, on a clay court where the ball does bounce higher, the rallies are longer. As you said, the Nadal physicality that he brought to men's tennis came at a time when, you know, not necessarily everyone had that sort of level of, of fitness. Correct. And and just the, the, the pace and spin that he put on balls. And this is not unusual to see Spaniards that can play all day, that can hit heavy off of both sides. That's not unusual. We saw the Spanish Armada in the 1990s. But the fact is that Nadal had a certain amount of power and the, even 
the mental side of his game was so much stronger than players who had dominated on clay before him that it almost gave him a leg up on other surfaces that he was so much he was so much stronger mentally than other players on tour that he would forget bad points that he was confident that no matter where he was on the court that he could not just hit good shots but that he could hit winners and that is that is something that separated himself and as as we've seen throughout the years clay destroys players mentally as well as physically and the rare greats like Rafa are able to to press through and overcome, and that was and it, and it showed itself not just in the French Open, but you look at the the streaks that he had on clay, whether it's Madrid or Monte Carlo, uh, leading up the clay court warmups, he just wouldn't lose twenty four matches in a row, fifty matches in a row, seventy matches in a row. It, he never took a, a point off, which is. A relentlessness that is, even among great tennis players, still pretty rare. So let's move on to Federer's preferred surface. Um, he's arguably the goat of, of grass. And let's let's talk about when Roger and Rafa, they meet on the grass. So we're talking about the clay and how Rafa, you know, is pretty unbeatable. You know, Federer's never beaten Rafa at Roland Garros, um, as we're recording this anyway. So let's let's go on to episode three of the series, which is grass versus clay. What do you kind of tell the listeners? If you could just tell us, what do you kind of focus on in, in this episode? He moves on to Wimbledon and, and the first of, of their many finals. Is that correct? Yeah. And the the big thing with grass is, yes, it is advantageous. And we've seen it throughout the years. If you are a big server, if you're a precise server, you are automatically going to have an advantage because of the way the ball skids quickly off of the surface at the All England Club and or as well as Queen's Club leading up to it. The grass season is not particularly long, but... It gives an advantage to servers and volleyers. It gives it an advantage to to players who can end points quickly, like Federer and his forehand and the pace with which he hits, the angles with which he hits. It, it's a huge advantage. He's comfortable moving on grass, which we've seen throughout the years. Players who have not specialized on clay but have, have thrived on clay, some of them even will take Wimbledon off just because it's such an extreme change going from the slow, bouncy clay to the fast-moving, skidding grass. And so... There is there's a general level of comfort for Federer with his serve that he's able to dictate points so much more thoroughly than he is on clay or really any other surface because of his the specifics of his game as it relates to his forehand and his serve. So, yes, it, it is particularly advantageous to a player like Federer who idolizes you know guys like McEnroe and Pete Sampras who are all court players instead of. You know, guys like Rafa, who spend a lot of time 5, 10, 12 feet behind the baseline. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, there's that old saying that the Spaniards used to say grass is for cows. Like, they yes. traditionally just yeah. were never, you know, some of them never even bothered to play, playing the, the grass court season. So I think for me, as a, as a Rafa fan, I was like so, I don't know, proud that he managed to finally, you know, conquer the grass. And to do it, and it was such a, you know, it was his main, main focus, wasn't it? After kind of conquering the clay, it was, you know, he didn't just want to be a clay court specialist. You know, he wanted to be an all court champion. And he grew up, he grew up dreaming of Wimbledon, even growing up in Spain and having the French Open be the apex of clay court tennis. Wimbledon, he he held himself to a high standard too, and Federer gets you know the attention for doing that. But you know, there's a quote when he's 13, 14 years old that he wants to win Wimbledon. That's that's where his eyes were set on. 
Yeah, and I think it's it, it's testament, and we see that. Um, let's let's have a listen to to a little clip from from the two thousand and seven Wimbledon final. And Rafa, you know, he lost that to Federer. It was an incredibly close, uh, what five set match. Um, and I think that really had a lot of of inspiration for him, for, you know, for the next year to come. So let's have a little listen. Finally pulls himself together, then goes downstairs to find his uncle Tony watching the post match champions interview with Roger Federer. No doubt, yeah. I mean, he's I mean, a fantastic player and he's going to be around for so much longer. So I'm happy everyone I get now before he takes them all. Nadal looks at his father, then Uncle Tony. No words are said, but the mission is clear. Somehow, hearing his rival say it out loud jumpstarts Nadal's confidence. He promises himself that next year he will become a Wimbledon champion. But he knows that to go through Roger Federer on grass will demand more than he's ever had to give to a match. So I remember watching that final and I was gutted afterwards as a Rafa <laughs> fan. So he was so close. And um, yeah, when I, listening to this podcast, Dan, has really got my, got my uh, you know, I can remember sitting in my dining room watching this and being avidly, um, you know, attached to the TV that day. That match, I think, was so important, you know, and we go, you know, on to a bit later to the 2008 final. But on grass, I mean, you said that, you know, Federer is incredibly difficult, incredibly difficult to play on grass. And especially for for Rafa, it was, you know, a big challenge to solve, you know, how to beat Federer on grass. As as a fan, as a a tennis nerd, Mm -hmm. um, as you said earlier, what, what surface do you actually prefer to watch watch Roger and Rafa play on would you would you prefer to see them on on a hard court where it's perhaps a bit more equal or clay or grass where they're kind of both in their kind of speciality zone if you like so there's something special to me about Wimbledon there's something that you know you know the dress code I think is a little little dumb but that's neither here nor there but there's something about because I grew up on the west coast I grew up in California so breakfast at Wimbledon was truly I was waking up you know 5 30 6 in the morning and there's something that is just built into my bones and my DNA that I love Wimbledon and I love the story, as you mentioned, of Rafa breaking through on a surface on which he didn't have a lot of experience, on which he didn't have a lot of success early on in his career. And there's something amazing about somebody like that overcoming and and breaking through and really giving a, a, an enormous challenge and eventually, and we'll talk about breaking through on grass as well, um, there's something special to me about watching tennis on grass. That said... Yes, they. I mean, they haven't played at the U.S. Open yet. They've played on hard courts all over the world. They've played in the Australian Open. So I understand the sort of more even nature of playing in Australia, and I will happily watch it again and again and again if they keep going. But uh, it, it's hard for me, if I'm being honest, personally as a tennis nerd, as you ask, um, to say that I, I, I love watching them on anything more than, than what they look like on grass. And do you think in, in terms of the rivalry, do you think that, What's so compelling about it is that it's almost like Federer has his home tie on grass courts. Nadal has his home tie on clay courts. But genuinely, you know, at this time, it was a, you know, it was a proper kind of 50-50, 50-50 matchup. And with kind of more, the more matches they were playing with each other, the more they were learning about each other's game. Oh, absolutely. And even though I think Rafa in 2005-06, he wins five or six in a row, and Federer gets to a point where he's saying, I can't figure this guy out. You know, a lot of it's on clay, obviously. I think they played on hard court a couple times in this span. And then he wins, Federer wins 
in 2006 at Wimbledon and then wins in 2007 at Wimbledon. But Rafa's getting closer and closer. And there is something pretty amazing about Federer realizing I can't be an all-time great unless I go through Rafa consistently because this guy, ha- you know, everybody else I can deal with. But Rafa is is that not even just a thorn in his side. He suddenly becomes an equal. And there's something pretty pretty significant about that, that that becomes fascinating. And they have to elevate their games, whether it's Rafa on grass trying to improve his serve. You know, in 2008, he finally starts you know attacking the net, which is incredible given what he looks like on clay. And if it's Federer being able to or not being able to set up points more methodically, that he has to start going for corners and ripping the ball corner to corner and following balls into the net and, and you know setting up approach shots earlier and earlier in the point because he knows Rafa will grind him down if he tries to just hit with him from the baseline. So it's fascinating to see the ways with which they tried to adjust their games, not for where tennis was going, but for each other. That's great. Do you think that with, you know, Nadal has beaten Federer at Wimbledon, mm-hmm. but Federer has never beaten Nadal at the French Open. And do you think that will always, do you think like that could ever be rectified? Or, or do you think that's always like an, an, an un, it's going to be an unanswered question? It could. It certainly could. I don't think it'll mean as much. If, the, if it happened when Federer was 28 and Rafa was 23 or 30 and 25, when both were clearly at the top of their games, and not that they're, you know, they're, what, they're both ranked in the top three or four right now, so it's not to say that they're not excellent players, but I think to so many people, most of the story of their rivalry has already been written, and what we're getting now is just, it's gravy. It's just dessert, and that's wonderful, but... You know, I, I I don't think we could really argue that a current Federer would handily beat a 27, 28-year-old Federer. And so it's entirely possible, you know, with, with the way that Federer's backhand has improved and the new racket and, you know, with the injury situations that Rafa's had to deal with, yes, you know, it could be it could happen as early as this tournament, this year at the Ed Roland Garros, that Federer gets over the hump and finally beats Rafa. I just don't know if it will carry the same weight if you know as if he could if he were to do it in 2007 i have to agree with that actually and i like the way um you describe what we're getting now as dessert (laughs) i've not heard anyone describe it like that but i think that's a great analogy (laughs) i'm very hungry right now (laughs) yeah (laughs) let's have a slice of cake um so let's talk about that epic uh moment where rafa finally dethrones federer at wimbledon um it's 9.15 p.m., 6th of July, 2008. Uh, let's have a little listen. Match point, Wimbledon final, uh, where Rafa finally, finally does it. They call it the greatest match of all time. Can you describe what you felt when you just fell to the floor when you knew that you were the Wimbledon champion? Well, it's impossible <laughs> to, to explain what, what I felt in that moment. No? So just very, very happy for, for winning this title. My favorite tournament for me is a dream, playing this court, but win, I never imagined something like this. So very happy. Thank you very much, everybody. So that was, you know, as I'm sure any tennis fan, a neutral, you know, Roger fan, Rafa fan, that that was such a roller coaster that day. That match, it had absolutely everything, you know, rain delays, um, you know, five sets, like darkness, you know, at the end. Would you say that that match is is the greatest match they've ever played together? 
I think so. And I think because even though you might be able to find a match where both of them were more on with more of their strokes and serves, whatever, there when you talk about the narrative of that match with the rain delays, with the fact that I believe it's their third consecutive Wimbledon final, that somehow it seems like there couldn't be more hype for a match than it could not possibly live up to the hype going in. It exceeds it somehow because of the rain, because of the darkness, because of the breaking through on grass, because of that Nadal has the match on his racket in the fourth set and gives it away and yet is still able to get it together enough to come back in the fifth set without knowing if it was even going to finish that night because, as we know, in 2008, Wimbledon finishes when it finishes. It doesn't go to a tiebreaker. And so there was something pretty electric about the mystery of that match near the end that somehow it surpasses any potential hype going in. So, yes, because of the twists and turns of that match, because of the idea of breaking through on somebody else's home turf, the literal home turf, um, that to me is 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 the apex because we're not watching robots play tennis. We're watching humans, and the human element of that match I don't think is is close to being matched. And do you think that's the greatest match of all time? You know, not just in their rivalry, but would you say of, of all tennis matches ever played, would you say that's, that is the greatest? I can't think of a better one off the top of my head. And I re, you know, remember what, whether it was Roddick and Federer going to, I think it was 16, 14 in the fifth, or, you know, you have your marathon, marathon matches, but I don't think the level of play combined with, what was happening externally with you know the rain and the darkness and the the breaks and the, their history leading up? I think so much more goes into the match that even if there are matches that match it in quality, that it, it's hard to separate the the storylines that we're thinking about as we watch the match from such a high level match. So yes, that is that is my number one. I'm open to people suggesting other matches are better. But the totality of that match, when, when, you, when you think about everything that went into it, it, it it's my answer as, as well. I also loved that Bjorn Borg was there watching it as well. Yes. And Underwear there was this kind of Bjorn Borg. <laughs> and it was kind of like this, there was also this cross-generational sort of appeal in that, you know, we had Federer, who arguably greatest grass court player of all time. Borg also not too shabby on a, on a grass mm-hmm. court. And I love that sort of, cross-generational moment in the you know this passing of the baton and almost seeing these two you know duel it out to see can can Nadal take the you know take the crown from Federer yeah and we saw it with Pete Sampras showing up in the royal box later on when when Federer is going to tie and break his records but yeah there is something that maybe it's just me as a a fan of the sport that there's something that is always going to feel very temporary about tennis records and that I feel like a lot of the the record setters know that it's only a matter of time before somebody comes along, and somebody did come along in Novak Djokovic to challenge them to start taking away their momentum to sort of be that next wave of excellence. And that I, I don't think Bjorn Borg or Pete Sampras or anybody on you know Steffi Graf on any in any sort of level of tennis fools themselves into thinking I am the end all be all I will never be surpassed and so a lot of these these players have made peace with that and it makes for for a lot of cool moments I would say and just touching on Djokovic you know obviously he's he potentially at the end of all their careers could have the most amount of grand slams he could surpass them in terms of records trophies won where do you think he 
in when all said and done, where do you think his legacy would would remain? Because you know, okay, Djokovic Nadal, yeah, they do have a very good, you know, intensive rivalry. Less so Djokovic Federer, but I mean, in the history books, do you think this rivalry between Roger and Rafa collectively will mean that they are the ones that people remember, um, even if you know they might not be at the end of the day statistically as successful as as Djokovic may end up being? Yeah, I think that's right. I think there is something memorable about having a set rival. And, you know, Serena Williams doesn't necessarily have that one person, I guess, outside of her sister. And so we accept her as the best. And she's, you know, she might be the best athlete of all time for all we know. But um, there is something about Novak Djokovic, his style of play, which is so, to me, robotic and deliberate there, that there isn't a lot of flourish there. And that's that's my own personal view that, you know, people may love Novak Djokovic for all I know. But there is something about a rivalry, a top tennis on either the men's or women's side that helps to define the sport for an era. And so it's hard to overcome Rafa Federer, even though Rafa's five years younger, even though they have these injury interruptions, they're having families. You know, we have this era of Rafa Federer between, what, 2005 and 2010, 11, somewhere in there. We have these five, six, almost uninterrupted. I think they won 17 of 21 majors at some point. Um, that even though Djokovic is now, what, he's won three in a row, and, you know, at one point held all four at the same time. There's something crazy impressive about that. Undeniably excellent. But without that set counterpart, it's a little bit of Murray. It's a little bit of Federer. It's a big four. It's not a big two. That it's it's just, to me, I'm not going to look back on this time and think, wow, Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic. What a time. No, it's me, Federer, Nadal, and oh, yeah, Djokovic. It's interesting because... I think, you know, when you have a, a rival, you're, you're, you know, and, and in one that is as good as kind of Federer or Nadal, you know, you're developing a game almost that is to beat that that opponent because you're probably going to be facing them in the final. You're not developing a game, you know, per, perhaps like, you know, Serena Williams, where you're just beating a game that's going to beat anyone on any, on any given day because that, you know, anyone could end up in the final. But with a rival, it's like you've got to develop the tools that are going to, they're going to help you beat the opponent you're probably most likely going to face in in the final. And you want to see them tested and it goes across most sports. You know whether it's in basketball if it's LeBron James and Steph Curry if you're a basketball fan, whether it's um even in tennis whether it's Connors and McEnroe or Borg and McEnroe, whether you know you look at you know Larry Bird and Magic Johnson going back to the 1980s in basketball. Um, you know Tiger Woods didn't necessarily have that counterpoint when he was at the top of his game, but he was a unique phenomenon. And you know in golf you're more playing against courses and the field. It's not this head-to-head opponent. And so I think we as fans appreciate competition and we measure players by the best competition that they face. And so there is something special when. You have two all-time players with Rafa and Federer peaking around the same time and trying to break through on different services at the same time and having personality, you know, the counterpoint to each other with the hard-hitting lefty from Spain and the, the more effortless righty with a one-handed backhand from Switzerland. So you have these sort of opposing visuals that uh, that just make the story more so than we've seen with other players. And it's... It's unfortunate. Some of it is dumb luck with timing, but I think timing-wise, it's been been a pretty huge success for the two of them. 
And going back to the podcast, um, as we're recording this, there have been five episodes in total. So the fifth one is an interview that you did with John Wertheim, who's the author of Strokes of Genius, which um, is a really excellent book focusing on on the rivalry. Um, what Are there any further episodes to come? And, and what yes. will you be focusing on in so, those? So the episode that goes up tomorrow is about basically everything that has happened after 2008. So 2009 in Australia was incredibly memorable with the marathon semi and Nadal with Verdasco against Verdasco and, and not being able to move and somehow having to play and beat Federer in the final. And then the incredible, I believe it's 2010 that Rafa had when he you know breaks through and wins the French, Wimbledon and the U.S. Open, though does not go through Federer in any of those finals. And then dealing with injury issues and Federer having two sets of twins and remaking his game at 35 years old, which, as everybody knows, knows is ancient in tennis that is positively he's a senior citizen and so going through everything that that sort of happened after their peak in their rivalry uh but at the same time it's open-ended that we don't know if per- potentially the greatest match that the two of them will play has even happened yet i think it has but you know i'm i'm never say never and we actually in the episode after that goes up friday it's a it's another talk with John Wertheim just about the nature of tennis rivalries and how the legacy that we've seen so far of Rafa and Federer fits into uh, the the legacy of tennis rivalries and what makes tennis rivalries in general different from competition in other sports. So two more episodes left. Great. And can you give us uh, an insight, perhaps, into what what does make tennis rivalries so much so much more different? And are there any other tennis rivalries? in particular that you kind of that have been of most interest to you you know since you've been a fan of the sport mike versus bob bryan what is that doubles relationship <laughs> like behind closed door no uh, oh. i actually grew up right right near them and they're i think a little older than oh, wow. yeah but um no tennis rivalries outside of Federer and Nadal right now are planned. I'd love to get to more. I'd love to do the Williams sisters. I think that's a pretty crazy dynamic, you know, given the big personalities involved in their careers. But um, what we, it goes back to something we've already talked about, and that's the the lonely nature of tennis, that you are out there alone, that it is it is boxing, for lack of a better term. You know, you're, you're exchanging these haymakers, you're exchanging these big punches, you know, you just it's across the net instead of wearing gloves. And whether it's in other sports where you have teammates, and you have coaches, and you can take breaks and sort of adjust your strategy with, with other people talking to you, that tennis uniquely burns out people physically and mentally and you get this incredible array of of people who are able to overcome all of these challenges and because it is so for lack of a better term mano a mano that you almost have to have these rivalries to to really appreciate the sport we we look back at you know whether it's pete sampras we think about sampras agassi we think about nike commercials where they're playing tennis in the middle of new york city in like sort of a pop-up environment we think about commercials we think about this this ability to say i don't want to see one person mowing down the field i want to see them against their counterparts and while we have that in other sports it's uh, there's so many of them that are team sports there are so many of them that that involve so many other variables and the fact is 
every basketball court is the, is made of the same material. You know, every every you know gym is roughly the same. We're talking about different surfaces. We're talking about traveling globally, not just around a single country or a single continent. You know, every week, and, and a lot of players struggle with this, tennis is an expensive sport to, to play professionally between the coaches, between equipment, between travel, between dealing with injuries. There is something unique about the nature of going on an international tour to play on different surfaces that really no other sport can claim. And I think it's fascinating. And I guess kind of final question from us is one is when all is said and done and you know Federer retires Nadal retires you know in a nutshell how do you think their kind of their rivalry will be will be described I, well, I don't think you're going to be able to separate Roger Federer from Rafa Nadal I think in that same conversation when we're talking about Rafa's legacy or Roger Federer's legacy it's you're going to hear about the other one so I I think they're going to be remembered as, I mean, I, I think it's generally accepted right now that Roger Federer is the greatest ever, and I'm okay with it, but I would be, I, I would listen to you and I would understand if you were to say, well, Rafa has it head to head, so it's hard, and especially in majors, it's hard to argue saying Rafa's the greatest of all time, that sure, he didn't beat, uh, I'm trying to think of an opponent that, you know, he didn't beat Andy Roddick at Wimbledon, he didn't beat, you know, Andy Murray at Wimbledon, he didn't, you know, beat Rob, Robin Soderling in a French Open final, whatever. Um, although I think he actually ended up doing that in 2010, he did beat so. But <laughs> yeah, he did. <laughs> we're not we're not going to remember their accomplishments against other people, and so I think it's totally fair to say that Rafa Nadal is the greatest ever. But then at the same time, my my other asterisk in there is, and it it feels right to you know write a needlepoint on a throw pillow that the greatest av- ability is availability, and. Roger Federer has done not because he's lucky not I mean and certainly Rafa has been unlucky with injuries Rafa has has not done as good a job as Roger Federer has at staying present staying healthy being available you know winning the matches he should win on all surfaces to win majors and there is something to be said about that ability of Roger Federer's that I don't think can be fully overlooked so that's why I have Roger Federer as the greatest ever because he has won all four majors and even though he didn't go through Nadal on clay at the French he has he has spread it over more surfaces and he has been able to to play longer and I think there is something about endurance in tennis that that I think has to be a part of the conversation I was just about to ask who you would support in a in a in a Fed Fedal match, but I think you might have just answered that one. <laughs> it's it's tough though. I I mean it's it, it's not absolute. I mean I I have always and maybe it's because he arrived on the scene first, and I, I sort of grew to admire Federer that I have always really enjoyed Federer more than Nadal, but it's not any reason why. I think I identified with him more as a big serving high school player, um, and. It, he just came along first, so I, I he was more reminiscent of Pete Sampras, who was like my idol growing up. He's from California. He's this big server. And so it felt like a continuation to me of Pete Sampras, the one-handed backhand, the big serving. And then I just – I grew to appreciate Nadal more throughout the years, even though I was bummed when Nadal would win. And now that I look back on it with a 10,000-foot view, I'm just more confused than ever because they're both so great. Um, so – I, I guess I give the edge to Federer, but if I were to tell you that it's completely impartial, it'd be a little bit of a lie. 
Well, I'm sure that all of our all of our listeners can go and check out uh, your podcast, Sports Wars, and make that decision for themselves. Relive the story from the very beginning. Where can they access Sports Wars? If you go to wondery.fm, excuse me, slash Sports Wars, or if you just Google Sports Wars, or you look on Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts, if you look up Sports Wars, you'll find it. Um, our first arc was Brett Favre versus Aaron Rodgers, American football, um, and sort of the transition between players playing the same position. But we are going to go into basketball we're going to do olympic sports we're going to do as many as we possibly can it it does take a good deal of work um each one of these arcs between writing and recording and editing and and getting all the the relevant clips and sound design but i am extraordinarily proud of the fact that we could get federer and adal in uh pretty early on because it's just a personal favorite of mine and we'll make sure to put a link in the description to the Sports Wars podcast so you can have a listen to the Federer and Nadal rivalry from the beginning. But I think for this episode of the Passing Shot exercise, I hope you've enjoyed listening to to this little snippet, this little taster on the Federer and Nadal rivalry with myself and Kin. Dan, it's been great having you on the show. Hope you Hope you enjoyed yourself. Oh, I I loved my time. I've never been able to talk about tennis with this much detail. So thank you for giving me an outlet. <laughs> Anytime. And Dan, just one last thing. Where can our listeners find you on social media? Uh, you can find just Dan Rubenstein, R-U-B-E-N-S-T-E-I-N on, uh, on Twitter. It's mostly pictures of sandwiches and things like that because <laughs> in a world where everything is on fire, you know, let's just appreciate good looking food sometimes. So, yeah. yeah. It's- well, you can go off and have your dessert now, yes. um, now that we're coming to an oh, end. <laughs> So, yeah, thanks a lot, Dan. And it's been wonderful. And, yeah, all our listeners, definitely check out the podcast because it's uh, it's fantastic. So thanks a lot, Dan. Thank you. And thanks for the support. And uh, we'll be back next time for a- another episode from The Passing Shop. So I hope you can join us then. But for now, thank you and goodbye. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our show. We're supported by every one of our fans in the Passing Shot community. If you want to become one of them and get the latest updates from your tennis catch-up service, then all you need to do is follow us on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook at Passing Shot Pod. And if you like what you hear, then why not tell your friends or leave us a rating and subscribe? Thanks for listening.